Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler. Hi, Ben. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, a new way to tackle the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Scientists in America have made a breakthrough by electrically stimulating the spinal cord. Also, it's good for your health, but bad for the ocean. Why researchers are now saying that we really can't afford to recommend oily fish more than once a week. And also the future suture, how an inkjet printer could be about to hold the key to healing wounds on the operating tables of tomorrow. And we'll be finding out how it works in just a second. Ben. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're exploring the world of computer science, including hearing what the next generation of computers and computer programs will be capable of. We'll also be meeting the man who wrote a smash hit computer game and has now become a neuroscientist. He's using his computing skills to solve key questions about the workings of the human brain. Plus, we'll also be delving into the virtual internet world that is Second Life, which people are suggesting could become the arena for business meetings in the future or even a trip to the Tate. I was wandering around a, an art exhibition and saw this annoying person actually dressed as a witch on a broom flying around the room. Turned out to be the artist and had a nice conversation about how his inspiration was created and had a much greater insight than I would do just by looking at the static art. So obviously uh, the art was clearly better than the dress sense. That was Mike Hobbs and he'll be with us later to explain his vision for the future of Second Life. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This week, scientists have made a breakthrough in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative brain condition. It's quite common, and people who have it complain of tremors, but more noticeably and more of a problem to them is the fact that their movements are very hard to get going. They know what they want to do, but they just can't make the movements start happening. And also, when they do get movements going, sometimes they're much slower and smaller than they would like. Scientists have tried treating the condition in various ways, and it occurs because the brain ends up with too little of a chemical called dopamine, which is produced by one class of nerve cells in the brain. And one way to treat the condition is with a drug called L-DOPA. L-DOPA is an amino acid which is used to make dopamine in the brain, so giving more of it means the brain then increases the amount of dopamine it has, and this can alleviate the symptoms. The problem is that in the long term, it's also associated with the development of quite severe side effects. People get what's called the on-off effect. They can freeze up, they can also get too much movement, and it can also produce nasty hallucinations and other side effects like sickness. So it's not exactly an ideal treatment. At the same time, researchers have also looked into whether we could stimulate the brain electrically to try to alleviate some of the symptoms, and that's been a quite a successful field of research for a while now. Electrodes are implanted deep in the brain's motor circuits. When you stimulate those circuits, then movements can be made more easily. The problem is that kind of surgery is dangerous. It's also not very easy. So researchers are now looking for alternatives, and this is the work of Miguel Nicolelis, who's a researcher at Duke University in America. He and his colleagues have got a paper in the journal Science this week, and what they've done is to instead stimulate the spinal cord, and specifically they've stimulated a part of the spinal cord called the dorsal columns, which are the main nerve sensory pathways carrying information from the body up towards the brain. Now, the insights that led them to try this in experimental animals were that when you study the brainwaves of people and animals with forms of Parkinson's disease, the brainwaves aren't normal. What you see are synchronous patterns of almost erratic firing of nerve cells, almost coming in waves. It's as though you've got an engine that's running badly. And what they wondered was whether this could be linked to the failure of the brain's motor areas to initiate movements correctly. And by stimulating the sensory pathways, what they've now found is that this sensory information coming in from the stimulator seems to desynchronize these abnormal brain firing patterns, and it means that the brain activity returns to a more normal pattern resembling 
a brain that's being used to make movements. And when they do this in experimental animals, the animals show very few side effects, except that they are 26 times more spontaneously active than animals that don't have a stimulator turned on. So the researchers are saying this is a very effective way to turn an animal model from an intense state of Parkinsonism into more freely moving animals. This is definitely worth a clinical trial. And it is an important disease. It's very debilitating for the people who suffer from it. And because this is so simple to do, relatively speaking, it looks like it could be very promising in the future. I'm pleased to hear it. It is definitely a debilitating disease, and it's nice when these sorts of things come through. Now, this week, the health benefits of eating the omega-3 amino acids found in fish may not outweigh the cost to the oceans of our continued fishing, according to an analysis in the Canadian Medical Association Journal this week. Dr David Jenkins argues that although some studies do show that eating fish rich in omega-3 oils can prevent heart disease and other chronic illnesses, the evidence is not really hugely convincing compared to the evidence for the dramatic falls in fish stocks worldwide. Looking at the results from many individual studies along with some meta-analyses, and these themselves take lots and lots of studies into account, they found that there is a suggestion that higher omega-3 consumption could lead to a 15% benefit in the prevention of cardiovascular disease. That's good. Some of the studies they looked at found benefits in only a few situations, though, and follow-up studies occasionally showed that the benefit had actually reversed three years later. In contrast, the evidence for falling fish stocks and collapsing populations is as compelling as it is frightening. Fish catches have not increased since the 1990s, despite increased fishing effort, and the percentage of collapsed stocks has actually been increasing exponentially since the 1950s. There are also socio-economic factors to consider, such as the fact that a collapsed fishery in the United States or in Europe or Japan will mean that we have to rely on importing fish from developing countries. Now, this means that these countries then either have to allow our foreign fishing fleets into their waters or they have to export their fish to our markets. And this deprives local communities of an important source of protein. Food security is just one of the many contributing factors to political and social instability. And these countries would then face nutritional and health challenges. So maybe we could farm fish. But even that isn't a very good solution. To farm salmon, bluefin tuna or sea bass, you need to feed them a high-protein diet of fish meal and fish oils. And ironically, farming fish puts even more pressure on wild fish stocks. And it actually takes between 2.5 and 5 kilograms of feed fish for every 1 kilogram of farmed fish produced. There is a potential solution, though. Bacteria, genetically modified yeasts or plants, may be able to supply our omega-3 needs. But they haven't been properly investigated yet, so we don't know what doses of this would be healthy, and they can't yet supply our demand. They conclude their report by saying, until renewable sources of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids become more generally available, it would seem responsible to refrain from advocating to people in developed countries that they increase their intake of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids through fish consumption. So that's food for thought. So are we all destined to stay thick then? (laughs) possibly but they do say that even the evidence for it making us cleverer although it is reasonably strong it's nowhere near as strong as totally outweighed by the evidence of the damage that we're doing to the oceans and so it really is a case of compromising working out how best we can get this without doing the damage well here's a bit of research that's a cut above the rest or maybe a way of repairing that cut above the rest. Uh, Roger Narayan is a researcher at the University of North Carolina, and he and his colleagues have been looking at how we can suture people up or stitch people up. I didn't like to put it like that, but that's what they're looking at in the future. And one promising avenue is the use of a natural protein which you find in mussels, not the mussels that are your biceps. These are the mussels that live on the seabed and on jetties. If you've ever tried to pull them off of a rock or the jetty, you know just how tightly they're attached, and that's because they make a cocktail of proteins which are one of nature's most powerful glues. And because it's a natural product, it should go very well in the human body in the sense that it should be biodegradable. Because when surgeons stitch people up, you're using usually things that are not natural products or things that are foreign bodies at the very least. And these can get infected. And this can also mean that wounds then don't heal properly. At the same time, if you put foreign bodies into a wound, some people can also have allergic reactions to them. So researchers are looking for better ways to get cleaner healing of incisions and what these researchers have done is to ask well how should we put these proteins into a wound how best to deploy them and they found the answer could be the head of an inkjet printer 
So what Roger Naran and his colleagues have done is to make various cocktails of these proteins extracted from blue mussels, which grow in the water, and they put them with iron ions because this seems to make the proteins much stickier in the right combination if you mix them with a bit of iron. And by spraying them out of an inkjet printer head, and the way that works is that there's a tiny piezoelectric crystal inside, and when you apply current to the piezoelectric crystal, it vibrates, and the vibration causes the head to spit out tiny droplets of this glue. You can then paint onto a surface just the right amount of glue for it to then become very, very sticky and heal things. And I, so I asked Roger, well, you can't really feed someone into an inkjet printer, can you? So how do you see this being used? And his argument is, well, the heads are very portable. So we could in the future see a Star Trek-like effect where you have this print head handheld device which basically squirts the glue into a wound and you then hold the edges together, it sets, and then you've got something which will break down naturally. It will have very low allergenicity. It's not like superglue, which people have used in the past and is toxic. So it's much better all around. That sounds fantastic, as long as you can get the right printer drivers to work with Windows Vista, which (laughs) seems to be a problem I've had recently. But as it's a protein, how do we avoid our immune system responding to it? Well, that's the question because it hasn't been tried yet, and the big thing is to say, well, let's try it. You can definitely get away with using it once. On the other hand, it might be possible to make sure that you use cocktails of these things that don't elicit an immune response, but until we try, we're not going to know. Excellent. Also this week, some new software can identify a tiger from its pelt, which will help to catch poachers out in the act. A tiger's stripes are unique, very much like our own fingerprints. Now, this means that an individual tiger can be identified from its colouring and patterns. Lex Hybe from Conservation Research Limited has developed a software system that uses images taken by camera traps and stitches photos together to build a three-dimensional map of the markings. And this goes all the way from the neck to the base of the tail. This map can not only let us identify individual animals in the wild, so from other photos taken by camera traps, and this will help us to get accurate population numbers, but also you can flatten this map out and use it to identify skins that are traded on the black market. This, of course, has the added benefit of knowing where and roughly since when the tiger was killed, which will help to trap poachers in the act. It's also a very accurate technique. From a collection of between 264 and 298 tigers, the software correctly matched 95% of images that belong to the same animal. The idea behind this, using pattern recognition to identify individual animals, has been used for several different species, such as grey seals, cheetahs, penguins and whale sharks. And the beauty of this sort of pattern recognition is that you don't need all your photos to be uniform. In fact, tourist photos have been used alongside those taken by researchers to show that numbers of whale sharks have actually increased by 1.7% over the last 12 years. That's according to Jason Holmberg of the research organisation Ecosian. Hybe is confident that this software could make the backbone of a central database, as he writes in this week's Biology Letters Journal. He said, An image of a skin that has been taken from one of the tigers in that database could be traced within a few minutes to where and when the living animal was last recorded. It's a simple software solution to help the fight to protect this endangered species. Fight against poachers. Um, It's interesting because there was a similar thing done with DNA in ivory and researchers built up a DNA map of all of the elephants around Africa so they could then take a piece of ivory, ask someone its provenance and if their story didn't fit what the DNA said in terms of where it must have come from geographically they knew it was probably going to be illicit and so they were able to then take them on and say well you know how do you account for this? Okay, and we could, of course, do exactly the same thing with tigers, find out whereabouts these are coming from and where they're being sold. And this way, hopefully, we can stop this really quite dangerous market. Thank you, Ben. Well, also this week, the European Space Agency has launched the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer satellite, which is why we call it GOCE, G-O-C-E for short. And they say it's going to bring about a whole new level of understanding of one of the Earth's most fundamental forces of nature, and that's our gravitational field. Well, Dr Chris Hughes is from the Proudman Oceanographic Lab. He's down here on Earth with us, thankfully, and he's planning to use the data from GOCE to better understand what's going on in the world's oceans. He's with us now. Hello, Chris. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, uh, what actually is GOCE? How does it work, first of all? Well, if you imagine having uh, six metal cubes in a box in orbit around the Earth. Because they're all in slightly different places, they're feeling slightly different bits of the the gravitational field, so they will move differently. Ideally, what you would want to do is just track them and measure the relative motion. That tells you about how the gravity field is changed from one place to another. You can't do that because they'd rattle around and bounce off the walls. So instead, you hold them still and measure the force that you need to hold them still. 
And what sort of orbit is this satellite in? Is it going over the poles, so the Earth is effectively turning under it, and this means that it can effectively, over the course of a, a one-month period, scan the entire of Earth's surface? Yes, that's right. It's not quite over the poles. It's about 60 degrees off, but it covers almost all the Earth, yes. Why is this useful to you as an oceanographer? What can we learn by studying the Earth's gravitational field? Well, we want to know what the ocean currents are doing. And we can learn an awful lot about those from sea level, whether the sea surface is sloping or not. It's rather like isobars on a weather map tell you which way the wind is blowing. The sea level tells you which way the currents are going. Now, if you want to know whether the sea is sloped, you need to know which way is up. And we know it pretty well, obviously, but we don't know it well enough. We're talking about very, very small gradients. One in a million is the gradient that matters. So you need to know very precisely what the gravitational field is in order to define the direction of up. But given that the Earth is a sphere, Chris, why don't we just see gravity being uniform everywhere across the Earth's surface? Well, because the Earth isn't quite a sphere. Every mountain, every bump, every different mass around the Earth has its own bit of gravitational attraction towards it. So if you actually look at the, uh, the shape of the sea surface, what you see is a whole set of wrinkles and bumps. It really looks like a map of the sea floor because every mountain on the seafloor is pulling the water towards it. So what you think of as a nice, smooth, round sphere is actually quite wrinkly and bumpy when you look on the very small scales. And an understanding of these currents, how will this inform us about what's going on in the oceans? Well, the ocean is almost half of the climate system. It carries heat around from equator to pole in just the way that the, the atmosphere does. And it keeps parts of the Earth warm, cools other parts, and is very important for things like fisheries, but also climate in Europe in particular. Now, it's very difficult to measure. There's so much going on in the ocean. It tends all to happen on smaller scales than it does in the atmosphere. And there are fewer measurements. It's harder to see into. We can't measure much in the ocean from satellites. These measurements of currents are really going to give us a huge amount of new information about the basic patterns of flow in, in the ocean that allows us to understand how the heat gets transported around. And just to finish off, Chris, how long is the, the acquisition of the data going to take? How long before you can come back on this programme and tell us this is what we found? Oh, it's going to be at least a year. It's going to take six months or so before the whole system is calibrated and has gone down to its operational orbit and is taking measurements. And then there's a lot of work, once the data has been collected, turning that into useful information that we can calculate the sea level relative to the gravitational field. So there may be some early results somewhere around Christmas time, but it's going to be many years down the line before we've got really perfect observations, the best we can get out of it. Well, we wish you luck with it. Thank you very much. That was uh, Chris Hughes, who's from the Proudman Oceanographic Lab, telling us about GOCHE, which is the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Ben Valsler. There is also another way to listen to The Naked Scientists, and while you're doing it, you can chat about the science in the show with like-minded folks, or at least with the digital representations of like-minded folks, and that's because it's in the virtual world of Second Life. We're live at 10am Second Life time every Sunday, so if you want to join us, sign up for Second Life, visit the Scientlands and search for The Naked Scientists. You can drop by our delightful mansion, relax on one of the sun lounges, or sit on the sofas inside, and listen to the show. Thank you, Ben. We've heard from Ray in Chelmsford. He's wondering, could we tunnel our way from the UK to Australia? Obviously, it would be long, he says, but technically, could it be done? I think the answer is, Ray, probably not, purely because of pressure and temperature constraints and also the fact that the Earth is pretty liquid inside, down as far as the, the actual inner core, and therefore you'd have to contend with huge amounts of pressure, huge amounts of temperature, and I don't think we have either the energy or the building materials that would be capable of withstanding that. If you think about it, the Earth has a radius of about 5,000 to 6,000 kilometres. If we're standing on the Earth's surface, you're feeling one atmosphere of pressure. Well, the atmosphere above you, this is just talking about the gas, is about 50 kilometres high. So if you were to go 5,000 kilometres to the centre of the Earth, you therefore have 100 times the greater amount of atmospheric pressure on you. So the, the pressure just from the atmosphere would be so huge that just trying to move through that kind of gas would be like running into a brick wall. So very tricky indeed, but a good thought. 
Now, coming up, we'll be finding out how computers of the future will be intelligent and also how they can reveal the workings of the human brain. But first, Ben and Dave will be donning their shades to see how a flat-screen monitor works. Hello, welcome to this week's Computer Kitchen Science. Now, a kitchen isn't the normal place that you'd have a computer, but Dave has dragged his in so that we can have a look at how the screen works. Now, Dave, I also note that you're wearing some very cool sunglasses. It's quite a sunny day today, but we are indoors. Don't you think you should take them off? OK, then, Ben. I wouldn't call them cool sunglasses. They were very, very cheap. The reason I brought these with me is they're part of the kitchen science, which is exceedingly simple, as long as you've got a modern computer monitor and a pair of polarising sunglasses. So we need a flat-screen monitor, don't we? An LCD screen, not one of the big, chunky CRT ones. No, and not one of the plasma screen TVs, which you sometimes get. All I want you to do is take the sunglasses, look through them at the screen, make sure there's something on the screen, of course, turn it on, and then rotate your head around as far as you can, one way and then the other. So all we're doing is looking at a screen with some polarising sunglasses on. And what do we hope to learn? Well, this should help us understand how the LCD screen works. Fantastic. Well, later on in the show, we'll come back, we'll let you know exactly what we saw, and also do a few more experiments to show quite how an LCD screen works. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler. Now, this isn't computer science related, but we have had an email from Paula O.R., who actually asks a question on behalf of her seven-year-old. And she said, why is ice sticky, especially when you touch it with wet hands or with your tongue? Actually, I've had a nasty experience because I used to work in a lab where we had lots of minus 70 freezers and we used to develop various gels and things in those minus 70 freezers. And if you weren't careful and didn't put some gloves on, when you went into the freezer and grabbed your developer out or the rack, then your skin could freeze onto the rack. And uh, when you removed your fingers and let go, then it left a lovely fingerprint Mm. on the thing. And and that quite literally was a fingerprint because it was the surface (laughs) layers of skin from your finger. The reason ice is sticky is for that very reason, that the ice itself is so cold. And if you touch it with skin, because your body secretes tiny amounts of liquid, sweat, which is a salty fluid, onto your skin surface, it actually makes your skin a bit stickier which is why we have it. It's for grip. If you then touch that onto a very cold ice surface, the ice will then refreeze the liquid on your finger. And because that liquid is a fluid and it has got into all of the little nooks and crannies on your finger, it then freezes solid and forms a very tight bond between your finger and the frozen surface, the ice, and you get stuck to the surface. And if it's an ice cube, it's okay because there's enough heat flowing through your fingers, usually to remelt that transient freezing and you can then detach yourself but in the case of my minus 70 freezer or even colder people out in the antarctic have to be very careful with this kind of thing it doesn't warm up and you can then end up permanently frozen to the surface or you can do quite bad injury so that's why ice is sticky you get literally frozen to the spot i shall remember not to lick frozen things in the future but we've also had a very similar question on our forum that's the naked scientist.com slash forum from nearly p who's asks all sorts of incredible questions he said why is it that blue tack is very good at sticking one thing to another when it itself doesn't actually feel that sticky i think there's two aspects to this one is in the same way as the water gets into all of the nooks and crannies on both your skin and a surface that you touch in the same way as when you lick your finger to turn a page you create uh, more friction between your finger and the surface because the water can form an attachment to that surface blue tack is plastic and in other words it can deform plastically so it gets into the nooks and crannies on the surface you're sticking it to and the surface it's already stuck to which makes it sticky and the other point is that when you press it onto a hard surface the blue tack forms a very smooth flat surface against that hard surface and this excludes air so in order to get the blue tack back off the surface it's effectively got to break a vacuum so the atmosphere is helping to hold the blue tack stuck onto the surface and that's why i think it's sticky So that's the same reason why if you get two sheets of glass with just a little bit of water between them and press them together to exclude the air, it's really hard to peel apart, even though water isn't sticky at all. Two microscope slides are almost impossible to separate. If you put a drop of water and then put the two glasses together, you've got to twist them off each other, you can't pull them apart because the atmosphere is squeezing down on you. Every square metre is feeling a force of 10 tonnes, the weight of a London bus. So our bodies, every square metre of our body has got 10 tonnes of atmospheric pressure pushing on it, and that's what's holding your leaflet stuck to the wall with blue tack. (laughs) Fantastic. Now, it's hard to think of any aspect of our lives that isn't dominated by computers, and this shows very little sign of stopping. But just what do we mean by computer science? 
Well, to tell us is Professor Chris Bishop, who's the Chief Research Scientist at Microsoft Research in Cambridge. He's also a Professor of Computer Science at the University of Edinburgh, so a very busy man. And he was the guest for the 2008 Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. So, Chris, what do we mean by computer science? Well, what I mean by computer science is really the, the set of underlying ideas, the mathematics, the concepts that makes digital technology possible. I think it's also worth saying what computer science isn't. So, to my mind, computer science is not really about how to use computers. So something that we teach a lot of children in school is ICT skills. We teach them how to use computers, how to use software, and that's a very important set of skills. But that itself is not computer science. So that's like the top level. We all use computers. The next level down is really how to modify computers, how to get them to do new things. That's really about programming and software development. And that's something which I I think would be great if we taught even more of that in school. We barely scratched at the surface of that in in the school curriculum. It would be lovely to teach more of that. But underneath that, again, is this sort of third level, the foundation of the subject, and that's computer science. That's the set of mathematics, the concepts that make it all possible. And while computer technology evolves incredibly rapidly, and next year we have a whole new set of gadgets, and the year after it's another set of gadgets again, the concepts of computer science are much more fundamental. Some of them have been around half a century, and they evolve much more slowly. And I think it would be just wonderful if we could show children in particular a lot more of these basic long-term concepts. So it's really an understanding of the algorithms, the maths that lie at the very heart, completely regardless of the technology and what you're then doing with it. You need to understand how the numbers work in order to build up these layers that eventually get to a word processor or a shoot 'em up That's exactly right. A famous computer scientist called Dijkstra once said that computer science is no more about computers than astronomy is about telescopes. So the, <laughs> the ideas of computer science apply whether you're talking about silicon or whether you built your computers out of gear wheels, or whether you built it out of DNA or, or chemistry in some way. These are very general concepts about the limits of computation and the capabilities of computation in a very general sense. As we've already said, you're the chief research scientist at Microsoft Research. What is it that you do there? We think of Microsoft as being the people that make Windows, which uh, a lot of our computers run on my own laptop, of course, runs on Windows. What do you do? Well, first of all, Microsoft Research, which is about 1% of Microsoft as a whole in terms of of people, is the the basic research component of Microsoft. So you can think of us as, in many ways, functioning like academics. Our researchers have a complete freedom to choose the research they do, to publish it where and when they choose, and to collaborate fully with academics and so on. At the same time, of course, they may also develop ideas that might have commercial relevance, and some of those ideas will be fed into the rest of Microsoft. Now, in Cambridge, in Microsoft Research Cambridge, which is the European lab of Microsoft Research, we have about 120 scientists covering a very broad range of fields from many of the mainstream areas of computer science, like security and systems and networking, programming language theory and so on, But we're increasingly diverse. We have people in machine learning like myself, computer vision researchers, even ecologists and biologists these days. And so one of my main roles as chief research scientist is to promote cross-disciplinary interaction. There's a big danger in this very heterogeneous environment that everybody stays in their own little stovepipe and they, they don't really talk to each other. So I try to find mechanisms to mix people up and get them to understand that the ideas and the problems in each other's fields. And I hope that that will promote interactions between the different disciplines because I'm a great believer that a lot of the really new ideas actually emerge at the intersection of different disciplines. Genuinely new ideas in science are actually quite rare and very, very hard to find. It's slightly less hard to take a good idea from somebody else's field and import it into your own field where it may be quite novel and may have quite an impact. In fact, we had a very good example of this on the show a few weeks ago with Alyssa Goodman, who was using the software that's been developed for understanding and and visualising MRI scans to look at deep space. So it really is true that this sort of multidisciplinarianism is really the way that science seems to be moving. But going back to something you said that you were working on yourself, machine learning. Now, the idea of intelligent machines has been around for a while, but what do we really mean? How can we get a machine to learn? So, yes, the idea of intelligent machines goes right back to the dawn of computing, and certainly Turing, uh, Alan Turing, the, the famous Cambridge mathematician who was one of the founders of the modern field of computer science, was very interested in the idea of building intelligent machines. And it's obviously an enormously difficult problem. While technology in many respects has evolved incredibly quickly, and we now have machines that are extremely good at, let's say, multiplying numbers together, far, far better than any human, 
There are other tasks that people and, to some extent, animals are very good at that we tend to characterise as intelligence. Uh, things such as uh, visual recognition, simply looking at a visual scene and understanding what's going on in it, recognising different objects and understanding what's happening, is proven to be immensely difficult to build those capabilities into a computer. So over the years we've been making good progress. There's a long, long way to go, though, before we have a machine which has very general intelligence. And in fact... Although perhaps 30 years ago, people sought to build machines that would be intelligent in a, in a high-level sense, that is, machines you could have a conversation with about philosophy or poetry, for example. We've sort of more or less abandoned that because it's really just way too difficult. <laughs> and we've kind of taken a, a bottom-up approach, a more of a signal processing approach. We say, well, let's look at some of the simpler tasks that machines are not yet good at, but, say, people aren't good at. And the example I gave already was recognising objects in the visual world. It's an immensely difficult problem. It appears to be trivial. I can turn around and I can say, well, look, there's a glass, there's a table, there's a chair, there's a microphone in front of me and so on. I can recognise these objects. But actually, what your eye sees is a pattern of light and dark and colour that is enormously variable. So no two chairs look the same. The pattern of light on the retina varies as the chair is moved closer or further away or rotated, as light is scattered off other objects, and which changes the colour of the light, which changes the colour of the chair and so on. There's this huge variability. And our brain, in some way that I think we don't really understand yet, mysteriously takes away all that variability and says, no, that's still a chair. If we could build a similar capability into machines, it would be very powerful technologically. It's a, an outstanding problem that we're just beginning to make good progress with, I would say. So it's one of the fast-moving frontiers of machine intelligence at the moment. Well, it sounds really exciting. It is true that we see a chair, but there are so many different varieties that if we had to program this into a computer, it would be an enormous database of things that they need to look at. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there for now, Chris, but hopefully we will get some questions from the audience for you. That was Edinburgh University's Professor Chris Bishop. So in the future, our computers may be much more intelligent, but ultimately that probably won't stop me getting distracted by games with Minesweeper. I'm glad that happens to someone else too. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> now, as you may have noticed too at The Naked Scientist, we are big fans of Second Life. We've been the programme in there and people turn up and listen to the programme and contribute questions as the programme goes on. If you're not acquainted with Second Life, let me tell you what it is. It's a three-dimensional virtual world. It's on the internet and people can then explore this world on their home computers and they use computer-generated representations of themselves, these are called avatars, to do that exploration. But what's the added layer here of complexity with Second Life is that you can meet and converse with other people in that world and see the same world they're seeing. And that means you can have conversations with them, it means that you can interact with them in various ways, you can even listen to live radio programmes there, like this one. But the virtual world does need enormous amounts of technology and artificial intelligence to power it. And Mira Senthilingam recently found this out when she went to talk to Dr Mike Hobbs at a special evening which was held by Anglia Ruskin University as part of the Cambridge Science Festival. Second Life is a lot of things to a lot of people. Essentially, it's a 3D virtual world that allows users to create images, sounds and activities within an environment that supports this. The key thing that most people end up doing is communicating with other people. So it's a way of mediating communication. Now, obviously, a lot of complicated technology is involved in creating Second Life, but would you be able to summarise just the amount of technology involved in creating such a virtual world? The basic unit of Second Life uh, would be a, a sim or a simulation, which is a square area as represented on a map. That is essentially produced by a core on a chip. Computer chips these days can have dual cores or quad cores. Many of these chips go together to make up entire uh, racks of computing. And so you can find that we have tens of thousands of individual areas all stuck together. And each one of those is supported by a core, on a chip, on a board, on a computer, in a database, in a server centre rather, and everything that you see and everything that you do is bits and bytes somewhere. It's entries in a large number of databases that record where you've been, what you're doing, what you're trying to see at the moment, what someone else is seeing you do as well. It is quite accurate on, on your view of the world and someone else's view of the world is, is kept in sync. Quite a technological feat. When Second Life first came about, it was thought that, you know, it might just dominate the world. Do you think this is still going to happen with it? No, I, th I think Second Life is, is a part of the internet and has a particular technological base and technological limitations that it, it actually takes quite a lot more effort to generate these things than a lot of people may 
first assume. I suspect the air conditioning unit for the servers is taking up as much power as a small village or a small town. So if you scale that up, you can see, well, there are going to be fundamental limits. Now, your background is in artificial intelligence. To what extent do you think artificial intelligence is being used in Second Life and to what extent could it be used in Second Life? It's been used quite a lot because of the fairly powerful level of, of scripting. There's a language in Second Life that allows you to get your objects and avatars even to, to react in certain ways. So you can program interaction, so which, which is different to a lot of game environments which are more limited. This evening you showed us um, the possibility for avatars to own dogs and this uses artificial intelligence, doesn't it? Yes, the, the dogs have quite a sophisticated level of artificial intelligence. They have a basic set of actions. The user doesn't actually see the programming languages underlying them. They interact with them by asking them to do things like roll over, beg, howl, and they can also add these actions together to get dogs to do more complicated sequences of actions. The dogs also have a random behaviour mode where they will do something out of their repertoire. And if you praise them by telling good dog, it will be more likely to use that particular action. So these dogs are actually being conditioned in the same way a real dog would? Yes, they're, they're being trained. And in fact, um, there are dog training classes, or more accurately, owner training classes, because the dogs don't need training. It's the owners need training on how to interact with a dog. So if it's possible for people to have dogs, what else do you think is possible? Well, there's certainly other animals. I know there's a, quite a big equestrian sector. And there are more mundane activities such as vending machines and chatbots that will interact with you and say good morning. Greeting bots, which can be really annoying, um, come up and say hello, how are you, here's a, here's a card, you know, read this, do that, can I take you on a tour and that sort of thing. So um, there are little bits of animated activity that give the impression of an artificial intelligence. Now what would you say the benefits and advantages of using Second Life are? Well, they're, they're multiple. They're on, a, on a personal level, I think it's a great way of interacting and meeting people because it's very easy to fall into chatting with people. I was wandering around a, an art exhibition and saw this annoying person actually dressed as a witch on a broom, flying around the room. Turned out to be the artist and had a nice conversation about how, he, how his inspiration was created and had a much greater insight than I would do just by looking at, at the static art. So there's the, the communication side of things and the exploration side. There used to be a, a representation of Paris. There's certainly a representation of Krakow in Poland and science exhibitions and the National Physical Laboratory has interesting stuff going on. And finally, where do you think Second Life is going next? So in like five years, what do you think Second Life is going to be like? To a certain extent, Second Life is ahead of the curve. So I think more things will be more like Second Life. I think there are some fundamental limitations as to how big it's going to get, but I think the richness and quality of what's going on in it will improve. So keep an eye out in Second Life for even more virtual things to see and do. That was Dr Mike Hobbs from Anglia Ruskin University talking to Mira Senthalingam earlier this week at a special event about Second Life for the Cambridge Science Festival. I'm in Second Life quite a lot, actually, and I never knew that you could have dogs, but I wonder what the artificial <laughs> intelligence would be behind a cat, because you can't train it, it just does what it wants. Well, of course, when I'm not here on the programme, I often connect at home and join in with the people who listen. And last week someone turned up in an ambulance, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> there was this annoying siren going off before the show started, and I thought, I hope they're not going to keep that going during the programme. And then and look round to see where it was coming from, and someone drove up in an ambulance. And I said, did anyone call an ambulance? As this person got out of this ambulance, it's hilarious. Were there no win, no fee solicitors following <laughs> it closely behind? <laughs> Almost certainly. Thank you, Ben. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. It's the Naked Scientist. Coming up in just a second, Diana O'Carroll's here with a colourful question of the week. If you eat too many orange-coloured things, will you go orange? We've got the answer. But first, from the Institute of Neurology in London is Demis Sarbis, who has traded a career in designing and programming computer games at Theme Park to become a neuroscientist. Welcome, Demis. Good evening. Good to have you with us. So tell us your story. You, you started off as a computer science student. That's right. So my um, undergraduate degree was in computer science at Cambridge. And so I was having a sort of traditional route in computer science then. And when I left, I set up my own computer games company, which um, I'd also programmed some games like Theme Park before coming up to Cambridge. So it was a natural progression for me to do that. So I set up my own company in Camden in London, and we grew up to 65, 70 people and, you know, created several games for big publishers around the world. 
And then around about three, four years ago, I decided that the games industry was going in a slightly different direction to the way you know I thought it would do when I first got into games in the early 90s. And it was becoming more a big business, big budget, sort of Hollywood type industry where there was less and less room for creativity, I was feeling. Do you think then that the financiers noticed the scale of this market previously? It was a bit geeky, bit niche, not a very big market. It still costs quite a bit because obviously you're saying big teams of people to do this, but the profits weren't huge, so no one was that interested. Suddenly people realised you can tether a computer game to a Hollywood blockbuster, you can make a fortune. Yeah, I think partly the realisation how big a business it was, but I think the main problem and the reason that caused that conservatism, if you like, in terms of on the creative sense, was that games became very, very expensive to make because the graphics got so sophisticated. You know, you needed teams of... A AAA game now would have easily 50 artists on it. And, you know, the costs of that are just huge. So because it was costing sort of £10 million, you know, for one game, the money men at these publishers would need to be more sure there was definitely going to be a return, which means linking in with a Hollywood franchise. That obviously was inconsistent, incompatible with your view of what you wanted to do. So you did the rather unusual thing of take a sidestep into neuroscience. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so underlying, although I was in the games industry for a long while, underlying all of that, all the games I've been involved with designing and programming actually composed a lot of AI in those games. And most of the games were big strategy. Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. For the non-initiated like me. Yes, right. And all the games I wrote, like Theme Park and Republic and Evil Genius, these games, they all involve simulations. And most of them involved hundreds of little computer people coming and getting involved with the game environment. And then most of the games were, like, for example, Theme Park were involved you manipulating that environment and seeing how these autonomous agents reacted to what you were doing. Those are the kinds of games I found fun to play and they were the kinds of games I found fun to create. But so underlying all of this was my passion. My main passion is actually in artificial intelligence and related to that, as soon as you start thinking about what artificial intelligence is, then you start thinking about how is it that the mind does achieves these end goals. You didn't get hooked on your own games, did you? No, well, actually, after you've worked on a game for three, four years, you're, you're sick of the sight of it in general, even if it's the best game ever. So. It used to take me about 10 minutes to get bored <laughs> of them. But some of the strategy games, I think, are terrific because they did force you to think in a certain way. I mean, I was a very big fan of text games in the early days because largely computers were rubbish. Yep. And the only thing they could do was to generate spurious streams of text that you could read laboriously. But they taught me amazing language skills. And I think it's partly responsible for why I have an incredible memory for text and words and facts because you had to remember effectively a graphical representation in your head of the text environment that was this computer adventure and I think that probably had a huge brain training effect on me. Absolutely and I think um, those early games also left a lot more to your imagination you know in the way a book would a great book you know it exercises your imagination which which of course you know a game with all the latest flashy graphics although it looks very beautiful obviously leads less need for visualization and creative powers. Now just very briefly because we are short for time how did you then actually develop an interest in neuroscience. How did you actually then take those skills that you had in computer programming and start answering important questions about how the brain works? So, I, you know, I didn't really know much about neuroscience before I started my PhD, but I did a lot of reading. And it struck me, actually, that a computational approach or an understanding of algorithms or the basic computer science that Professor Bishop was talking about is actually a useful approach maybe to take looking at how the brain works. And in general, most of the people I work with and most people in neuroscience are from a life sciences or medical background, which, of course, is incredibly useful from an anatomical point of view. But there are actually relatively few people in the neuroscience field that look at the brain in a computational way, in a machine-like way, which can give, you know, other insights. Of course, it's not a machine, the brain, but a lot of the things it does are actually relatively machine-like. And the problem that you've solved most recently, in a nutshell, what was that? So my most recent study involved... Uh, trying to accurately predict where someone was standing in a virtual reality room whilst they were lying in a scanner just from their brain scans. Why is that so difficult a problem to solve? Because I thought there are cells in the brain that fire off when you go into a certain place. What, we just read what that activity is, can't we? Yeah, so it's been known for a good 30 years now that um, these experiments were done in rats. There are cells that tell you where a rat is positioned in an environment or a pen. But no one really knew what those cells looked like on a population level. So if you were to look at a million of those cells at once, which of course you can't do when you're single cell recording with electrodes in rats' brains. So what I was interested in is if you could have this kind of global eagle's eye view, if you like, of the whole population of cells, that might tell you something different that you couldn't see on the individual cell level. Is this supposed to therefore be a model or a representation of what's going on in the real world? Are you trying to understand how 
because the person you work with, Eleanor Maguire, very famously worked out how cab drivers have bigger bits of their brains through navigating around London. Are you trying to basically understand how a cab driver finds his way around London? That's right. We're trying to extend those findings, really, in that we know the hippocampus is vital for spatial navigation and spatial memories, but we still don't know what it is about the environment that is encoded in those memories and is encoded by those neurons and how and why it's doing that. And obviously, you can't carry a you know two-ton brain scanner around with you. So to, the best thing we can do is to record people whilst they're navigating around in virtual, very realistic virtual reality environments. And when you do this, what did you see? And how does this influence our understanding of how this part of the brain tells us how to get from A to B? So brain scans work at quite a low resolution compared to single cell recording in rats. So when you look at one pixel, if you like, of a brain scan, which is called a voxel, a 3D pixel, that actually contains about 40,000 neurons. So for our pattern recognition algorithms to work and to be able to classify which location that was related to, it needs several hundred voxels to be active to train the pattern recognition algorithm with. What that shows is that these spatial memories must be represented by very large neural populations codes so including probably between two and five million neurons where previously we thought that it was just the odd cell that fired off now you're saying there's huge populations of cells that join together they code specific locations. that's right and also it says something about the way that they're clustered and structured so we found that these cells were also clustered quite closely together whereas previous rat literature suggested that perhaps they were random and uniformly distributed across the hippocampus Fantastic. Thank you very much, Demis Sasabis from Theme Park Guru. That's on the computer game board, obviously, to neuroscientists and decoding how the hippocampus works. Demis Sasabis from the Institute of Neurology. Ben. And now it's time to welcome Diana O'Carroll back with our question of the week. Yes, this week, are we what we eat? And that's Carlos from Panama asking. Just as flamingos get their pink colour from the pigmentation in the krill they eat, Adult penguins get their yellow spot on the face from the same source. My question is, would there be any pigmentation changes in a human's hair or skin colour if he or she ate plenty of raw krill? One particular compound found in krill is responsible for flamingo colour. So, can the same compound do this in humans? This is Dr. Stephen Juan. I'm the Ashley Montague Fellow for the Public Understanding of Human Sciences at the University of Sydney. Yes, there are... Uh, substances that can turn your skin different colors. One of the most famous ones is uh, keratinema, which is when you eat too many carrots, your skin can turn yellowish or orange. It's a benign condition. It doesn't seem to be related to anything, but if you eat too many carrots, the beta carotene builds up in your system and uh, you turn into the color of a carrot. First, a little yellow and then a little orange. There was an interesting study in 2006 in pediatric dermatology by a Royal Liverpool Hospital that showed that keratinemia can come from eating green beans as well. There are other vegetables like yams, it's been known to happen, where the color can change, and some other fruits as well. So yes, you have to be very careful. Of course, it's going to show up in lighter skinned people first but it will happen to, to anybody. And by the way, yes, there is something, uh, speaking of carrots, the old question is, what about carrots improving the eyesight? And yes, carrots do improve the eyesight a little bit, but only if you are vitamin A deficient to begin with. It's the beta carotin in krill, carrots, green beans and sweet potatoes that can change your hue, but only if you eat lots and lots of them. On the forum, we had a few stories of people who knew people who'd eaten too many carrots, so it seems it's not all that rare. And on the forum, RD found a case of one man who had argyria after spending years drinking colloidal silver, and that's silver particles suspended in a liquid. Mm. He's now actually blue, and you can find pictures of him on the internet if you just do a search engine search for argyria. He really is. He's blue, isn't he? He's like a smurf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's quite striking. He's actually a sort of photographic negative of himself. Because the silver's got into his skin and reacted with sunlight exactly. and, and apparently the effect is permanent. Lucky man. OK, from toxic colours to toxic substances and next week's question. G'day. I was wondering if you could tell me why are Australian snakes so much more toxic in general than other snakes in other parts of the world? Thank you very much. 
Right, and that's Damien from Australia. And if you know why Australia has been breeding the most venomous and toxic reptiles, then let us know by writing on the site of answers that is the forum. And that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or you can email us at chris at thenakedscientists.com. Talk about venomous reptiles. I think most of them end up in the cast of Neighbours at some point by the looks of things. Thank you very much. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Vowsler and with me, Chris Smith. In a second, back to our kitchen science where we asked you to take some polarising sunglasses and look at your LCD screen. We heard from Sean Bukes, who's in South Africa, listening to us, and he says you will see strange colours initially and then as you rotate your head further, the image will disappear almost totally. You get the same effect looking at an LCD display on a calculator. At 90 degrees, the image appears inverted. The dark display becomes light and the background becomes dark. Let's find out if he's right. Welcome back to Kitchen Science, where this week we're using sunglasses to see the science of a computer screen. So Dave, earlier on you asked people to put on a pair of polarising sunglasses, look at an LCD screen, like a flat computer screen, and then just twist their head around, lean backwards and forwards, and see if anything strange happened. Could I borrow your sunglasses and have a look? Certainly here, Ben. Okay, so I shall put the sunglasses on, and as I lean to one's... Oh, well... At this angle, just slightly tilted over to the left, it's it's gone completely black. I can't see anything on there. Now, sunglasses are supposed to make things darker, but surely they're not supposed to make it dark like that. It's something like a monitor. You're supposed to see it. Well, to understand what's going on, we've got to understand a bit about what's in a set of polarising sunglasses. Um, the first step in that is to take them apart, so I'll take one of the lenses out. So if you don't look at the monitor and just look up at the light and hold one lens in front of the other, when they're at the same angle, it's quite transparent. You can see straight through it. But if I rotate it 90 degrees... It's gone completely black. Yeah, that's right. It's quite fundamental to do with what light is. It's a form of a wave, a bit like a wave on a piece of string. And if you had a piece of string and vibrated it to form waves along it, you can either vibrate it up and down or side to side. And that the equivalent of this in light is called the polarisation. So you can have vertically polarised light or horizontally polarised light. So polarising lenses must only let one type of light through, so it either lets the vertical light through or the horizontal. Yeah, that's right. So when they're both aligned in the same direction, the vertical polarised light can get through the first and then the second. If you cross them, though, only the vertical polarised light can get through the first, but only the horizontal polarised light can get through the second, so nothing can get through the pair of them. Why not just have something that doesn't let some light through? Why do sunglasses need to be polarising? It's to do with some forms of reflection. If you're a fisherman or a sailor, or even just driving on a road with lots of puddles, you get quite a lot of reflections off shiny water surfaces. And the reflections off a water surface are polarised. So you can cut them out using a polarising filter and reduce the glare. OK, so I see why polarising sunglasses are useful, but what does this have to do with computer monitors? Why did it make the monitor go so dark? To try and explain some of that, I've got a rather bigger version. I've got some huge polarising lenses. Well, these are about as big as my head, so uh, I, I wouldn't want to wear these as sunglasses. But these are both polarising lenses again. Yeah, that's right. And at the moment I've got them set up so they're crossed, so it's dark, no light can get through. We've got them placed on the light box and it just looks like the bottom one is black. It's not letting any light through. If I take a really high-tech piece of scientific apparatus like an old plastic bag... Good to see you're recycling just cut a piece out of this. If I put the piece of plastic between the two cross-polarising filters, it still looks fairly black. But if I stretch it, something rather wonderful happens. Well, as you're stretching it out, it, it looks like a rainbow coming from it. it. It almost looks like the sheen you get from oil on water. Yes, the colours are very similar, but the mechanism is quite different. What's happening is, as you stretch the plastic, it will rotate the polarisation of lights. So the horizontally polarised light, which comes up through the first polariser, is rotated, so some of it is vertically polarised and can get through, so you can see light. Because it's no longer blocked by the top polarising filter. Yeah, that's right, and it rotates different colours, different amounts, so you end up seeing different colours. But surely we're not using the same trick on a computer screen. No, in a laptop screen they use something different called a liquid crystal. I've got some here, trapped between two thin pieces of glass. At the moment it's completely transparent. The liquid crystal is made up of long, thin rod-like molecules, which tend to want to align, so they're all pointing in the same direction. But on one piece of glass they're held horizontally, and next to the other piece of glass they're held vertically. So as they go between the two they have to slowly twist by 90 degrees. If you shine polarised light on it, this means that the polarised light slowly twists by 90 degrees as it goes between the two of them. So this means that if we put it between 
our two polarizing filters, just where we had our plastic bag, because it's changing the polarization, it should let the light through. Yep, we can test that here. Okay, so we've put it between the two. And yes, it's just like a bright window in the middle of a dark lens. Yep. Now, if we apply an electric field to those little molecules, it actually rotates them. So they sit at right angles to the pieces of glass and no longer rotate the polarisation of the light. So this would mean that the polarisation doesn't get changed and where there's an electric current, it should go black again. Yep, we can test that by pressing these little buttons. And we're getting what looks very much like a calculator display. I guess this is how calculators are made. Yes, and this is where I got my piece of liquid crystal from, an old calculator. Um, Yes, the calculator display, they have little areas which are connected to different parts on the calculator computer chip, so the computer chip can turn on different areas at different times and make up a display. That's all well and good for a calculator, but what about a full-colour, vibrant computer screen? They all work on exactly the same principle, but with much, much smaller pixels. Um, in front of each pixel, they've got a red filter or a blue filter or a green filter, so they can build up with all the different colours of the rainbow from the red, green and blue light. And then the computer just turns on millions of them at exactly the right amount, at exactly the right time, and it builds up a beautiful picture for you. Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. Well, that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week. If you'd like to look back through our archives, you'll find out that we also told you how the old, fat CRT-style monitors worked and a good way that you can distort the image using a magnet. That's on the web at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchenscience. And we'll be back with more great experiments very soon. So polarising sunglasses can let you see the world in a whole different light or maybe not see your monitor at all. If you haven't got any polarising sunglasses, we'll make sure that you can get the pictures and you can see what it looks like on our website. And so if you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science, Dave has put the pictures there of what his experiment showed. Now, we've had a question from Law Gynoid, which uh, I will put to Chris Bishop, if that's OK. He said, how will faster computer processors be made in the future? So computer processors have been doubling in speed every two years for the last 50 years or so, and that's been driven by something called Moore's Law, which says that the number of transistors on a processor keeps doubling every two years. And uh, as the transistors have got smaller and smaller, we've fitted more and more onto the chip, but we're starting to run into some problems. And one of the problems we're hitting already is to do with the heat density that's being produced by all these transistors in a tiny space switching on and off. Right now, the heat density on a chip is equal to that of a hot plate on a cooker, and if we carry on the way we've been going, then in about 10 years' time, that heat density will equal that at the surface of the sun. So we have to find a a new way forward. And the main approach that we're adopting is to do what we call parallel computing. So instead of trying to make each individual processor run faster, we have several processors side by side, all working on the problem together. And using that technique of parallel processing, we should be able to continue to get processors collectively to run faster and faster and to continue this doubling every two years for a good many years, if not decades to come. Thank you, Chris. I've got a question here for you, Demis. This is from Tony, and he says, is it possible to make some kind of helmet or headgear that could be used to read or influence brain activity? Or maybe even, for instance, if it got really good, to get someone watching a film in their head just by stimulation coming in from this helmet outside? Well, at the moment, um, we're very far away from that kind of technology. So far, all the technology that is being used in neuroscience at the moment is passively reading. The electrical activity of the brain is, is creating itself rather than actually influencing it the other way. I do know of some rather experimental studies that have been done trying to connect chipboards to rat brains and try and control the way they navigate. But as far as I know, um, those are very, very experimental at the moment and, and nothing's really practical coming out of that yet. I believe there was a researcher in Europe who showed if you uh, supply or apply an intense magnetic field to the head while people are learning things, then it makes them remember them better. I think he was doing this with word learning. He was putting students to sleep with a magnetic field around their head, and I think it improved or boosted the ability to learn, probably because the brain's an electromagnetic organ, effectively, isn't it? Yes, I mean, there, there may be ways... I mean, you could do it neurochemically as well with some drugs. You know, there are probably ways of changing and upregulating entire systems in the brain, but that's very different from influencing a specific thought or getting them to specifically think about a key episode or something like that in a film. Thanks, Damis. And uh, finally, Chris, there's a question here from Jomart Orman, who says, Hello, Naked Scientists. I'm Jomart. I'm a medical student from Kazakhstan, and I listen to your programme every week because it helps me to learn English as well as my study. I really like your programme. Thank you for that. It goes on to say, How do CDs, DVDs and hard disks 
actually store information? After all, they're just made of plastic. That's a great question. So CDs and hard disks work in slightly different ways, but they have something in common, which is that like all computer storage systems, they use binary. That is, all the information is expressed in terms of a string of, of ones and zeros or on and off. Now, in a hard disk, that's represented magnetically. So each bit is represented by a tiny magnet built into the surface of the hard disk. And if it's facing north up, it's a one. And if it's south up, it's a zero. And the head that reads this information can also flip the magnets. And so it can write information to the disk. Now, a CD is rather similar. It also has these ones and zeros, but they're represented rather differently. They're represented by little pits. So when a disk is written, a laser burns little pits into the surface of the disk, and then another laser can read back those pits. So if there's a pit, it might be a, a zero, and if there's no pit, it might be a one. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Chris. Right, well, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week, so it remains for me to say thank you very much to Chris Bishop, to Chris Hughes, and also Demis Sasabis, who you heard on this week's programme, and to our wonderful production team, Ben Vowsler, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Synthalingam and Dave Ansell. We're back next week when we'll be finding out how DNA technology can actually be used to trace the ancestry not of people and animals, but instead of ancient writings like the Canterbury Tales, also the history of flu and how historians make sure that they've got their story straight. So if you have any questions on that, do send them in chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, thanks for listening, have a great week and see you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.